So I'm not going to be able to convince somebody in an hour conversation or three one hour conversations that we're any different on the momentum than any of those. So I have to convince them on the people. And people is about getting them to sit with us and be ingrained and investing in them and investing in my own people. So they're excited. And that's the only difference. And that is a differentiator. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey leaders, welcome back. I'm Noah Tetzner and I'm joined today by the co-founder and CEO at Embrace, the only observability and data platform built for mobile. Companies including Hilton, P&G, and Home Depot partner with Embrace to observe, proactively analyze, and access the unique data sets of phones, tablets, point-of-scale sales systems, IoT cars, and other devices. My guest today is Eric Futuren. Eric, welcome to Leaders of B2B. No, thanks for having me, Noah. This is, uh, I'm excited to be here. It's such a treat to have you, Eric. We're going to get into your illustrious entrepreneurial experience. What you're doing with Embrace is fascinating work. The tech companies you've built before then, equally fascinating. But I just love to hear it in your own words because I gave a very brief kind of synopsis of the company. But yeah, tell our t- yeah tell our B two B leaders tuning in today about Embrace. What is the company all about? Who do you guys serve? What do you do? Illustrious is a big word, so hopefully I can live <laughs> up to it. Uh, but it's a warm intro. Uh, in, in, Embrace it was a mouthful, but Embrace is focused on mobile. Like if I think of my entrepreneurial lifetime, I look for waves to ride. Is kind of how I think about it. Like you can either start a company in a really mature ecosystem and try to disrupt, or you can try to. I find it more fun to go for an ecosystem where maybe a little more risky, but it's kind of nascent. So like, not that I started a company in 99, 2000, I'd age myself if I did, but internet was obviously the disruptor and containerization, I would say is one of them right now, but mobile is definitely a disruptor. So we took the bet uh, and my previous company took a bet as on mobile as well and did well, which is in a mobile games uh, hemisphere. But mobile is the great disruptor of our, of our lives right now. At, I think ever. Like if you think 10 years ago, we were not staring at our phones. Like the smartphone has really only been around for 10 years. We had cell phones before that, but the way we conduct our lives, like how we talk, how we message, how we chat, socialize, play games. But you mentioned some of them, like we were talking right beforehand, but like Taco Bell's a customer. Like when you go into the store, they don't want you talking to somebody at the register. A bunch of them have these floor to ceiling Android devices, like it's, it's a different experience or IOT, right? IOT is a mobile device in my mind. It's compiled code running on device away from a data center. Uh, and that's what we're focused on. So embraces a, a data platform because it's really hard to collect such voluminous user focused data. And then we make sense of it. So in today's world, you could call it observability or uh, DM or there's lots of terms, but at the end of the day, we work with enterprise companies just to help them 
transform to mobile and make sense of it for all their teams so they can enter this world and Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, just just again, to like provide more context for listeners, when we talk about a company like Taco Bell or Hilton, for example, you know, the unique data sets of like phones, tablets, etc, cars that they're trying to collect, you know, what kinds of data are we talking about here? Uh, The everything. (laughs) We try not to collect PII, so I won't scare your (laughs) listeners. Uh, but, but it, but I think what's interesting is like all the technologies we generally talk about uh, are focused on the data centers, like like the containerization and cloud and all those terms where processing power is obviously increasing and data storage and the needs. But most of the processing and the needs are actually pushing out. So like all these mobile devices you mentioned, like kiosks, and when you go to a coffee store, it's a point of sale system that's a tablet. Like that's where the processing is happening now. They're not windows to a backend. They have to run autonomously. That's what we're focusing on. Like that's the that's the end game. And so the data we collect is it's crazy hard. Like it's dirty. It doesn't necessarily have an internet connection. It's not synchronous. Like you could we have all trails as a customer hiking app. Like by definition, you could be off on a trail for days and come back. Like that's a hard problem actually to collect that much data and send it back without actually blowing up your device and your data plan. But it also means there'll be holes in it. And another differentiator is just user indexed. Like on the back end, we think of user as a property, but if you think about a device, the user is you. Like it has to be focused on you. And so like one of our primary use cases is literally just looking up a user, like masterclass, the engineers and the designers, if somebody complains like a celebrity, they wanna solve the problem. Like they wanna have that session and just look up the user, literally type in some indexed, because we don't want email and all that, but some index that they have or representation of the user, and then just see what happened. And that's why we started it. It was just a pain in the, in the what, you know what, to just literally look up a user and have all that data that you're talking about, behavioral and technical and networking data and optimization data and time-based data all in one place in a way that was digestible. Well, I, I want to get into your background, Eric, shortly. But before we do, you know, you mentioned when you start companies kind of riding the waves of, of you know, the trends of, of you know, various thriving ecosystems that are, are kind of nascent or initially. I, I guess, how do you see mobile with regard to that context? Like, <laughs> from your point of view, how should listeners be thinking about mobile? Like, like, is this sort of a, a wave we're riding at the moment? What are your thoughts on that? I think there were there, there are two ways to think about it, but there are generally two waves actually for any new ecosystem. So mobile by itself is a disruptive force because it's an entire way of changing our culture and how we interact, right? Even at work, like as people are going back to work, they're actually like doing invoices on their phones. There's no reason to go to their computer or talk to your EA. Like you should just approve it. It's changed the way we work. But I think of it as, so mobile as itself is a huge disruptive force, which is like an ocean. I'll use that analogy on which there are waves. The first wave, and it was true for the internet, uh, for web, whatever, 1.0 or 2.0, whatever you want to call it. The first wave is social games. So socials, photos, and chat. I obviously did games, so I was a founder of a game company called Scopely. Uh, and then there was a third category, which we put to the side. I, I won't talk about <laughs> for your listeners. But those are, they, they create the adoption. So those companies are usually early adopting companies, like game companies are always first there. 
because they want to capture that opportunity. That's why like the first thing you want to download when you're in a, on the web or when you first got your phone, if you can remember that far back, you probably downloaded solitaire. Right. right. Like, it's funny, but that's the game. Or you downloaded Facebook because you wanted to chat or just see photos. Uh, as soon as that matures, which it's matured, that wave's crested. It's still growing because mobile as an ocean is just continually expanding. But that's still good bets. Like I, I love my game bet. But the the next wave once adoption happens is media, e-commerce, productivity, uh, and we're seeing other ones like the gig economy and utility and things like that, which have been almost created because of the mobile phone. Like Uber doesn't exist without a mobile right. phone. Right. Okay, so this segues so nicely. I want to get into your your background with regard to Scopely. You're the co-founder of that company, um, which is the largest U.S. mobile games publisher valued at over $4 billion. So I, I guess, you know, I, I want to spend some time analyzing that and, and getting some of the history on that. But I guess, first of all, like, how did you get into, I mean, like gaming, the gaming industry, I, I, sh I should say with regard to like mobile games, that's, that's like such a cool vernacular. I'm curious, like, how did you come into that, that ecosystem? I don't think I'm as cool as the games <laughs> I built. Uh, but yeah, at Scopely, I built uh, Yahtzee, Walking Dead. I was in, I involved in Star Trek, Wheel of Fortune, a bunch of games. It was fun. No question. And it's still going, right? That's why my bet, I'm, I'm sitting on that bet, which is great. And I play Star Trek every day. I'm addicted to it. I got into it on a personal level because we didn't really focus on games. We looked for a problem, right? When you start a company, you look for the problem that you want to solve that you can be passionate about, but you don't necessarily want to think about how to solve it. That's why I choose game, like Embrace. Like everybody asks me what the name is. There's a, a meaning, but at the end of the day, don't pick a name for your company that is what you think you're going to build. Think about the name for the problem you're trying to solve, because otherwise you'll end up changing the name of your company or you'll pigeonhole yourself. So at Scopely, the problem we were looking to solve was the combination of Facebook back then with Facebook Canvas and phones that people weren't connecting. They were playing games like Farmville, which was it's huge, right? And it's day, but people, it wasn't a naturally social game. So we started with uh, Yahtzee, which was called Words with, uh, I mean, not words, that's a different game, uh, Dice with Buddies, for obvious reasons, for, for marketing purposes. But we looked for uh, types of games that created chat and social engagement and allowed people to connect, because that was the problem we were looking to solve. And similarly at Brace, like I explained the problem, but we were looking to solve this core problem of a user complains, can I just look them up? Do I have the data available? Is it digestible? Isn't a format where I can just quickly get back to that user? Honestly, it was myself. Like I was sitting there playing my own games and complaining and I, we had tons of tools and not one tool that an engineer could just go and look my, look me up. And so we couldn't solve the problems that I knew there were tons of other users with this same problem. And so our mission at Embrace is like, can we just help all of our experiences get better on mobile because they all suck. Like I still get an Uber and sometimes I'll switch to Lyft waiting for the Uber app to do something, right? And I'm sure we all experience yeah. that. Um, same with games. Um, the common thread for me across everything, I did ad tech before that, which actually is kind of fun uh, if you're a little uh, masochistic, is data. Like I like monetizing data. So ad tech is purely that. It's how do you collect data, make it usable and figure out a business model on top of that. But uh, 
based on what I was saying before, find a pain. So the first ad tech business I built was the first data management platform. It was just, there was no semblance of a user in the ad tech world, which is crazy to say today because every ad tech business is based on a user platform. Then in games, like mobile games, they're not the, they're not the sexiest. It's not Call of Duty and Fortnite. Like they're not beautiful. They're really data intensive businesses. Like you, live operations as a concept which kind of grew out of mobile games and I guess Facebook canvas games is a data intensive process. Embrace. It's all about the data. Like don't date, collect data for data's sake. Like again, look for the problem and then see it. But I love that problem. Like it's fun to have all of that stuff at your fingertips that no one else does. And then go help somebody and tell them like, here, just here's this piece of data. Here's a query I ran. Here's the dashboard I built. That makes your life so much easier. Yeah. So, so when when you were, you know, building Scopely, and I know you're still involved with the, the company to this day, you know, for you, was the passion behind that business data, just as it is with, with Embrace? For me personally, I would say the, the reason that it worked and why we call it publishing, because publishing doesn't really mean anything. But at the end of the day, publishing is the ability to get users and to monetize them and retain them. And if you think about that way, I I like the monetization side. Like we collect all this data on users and then we figure out the experiences they want, the push notifications they need, the unlocking that, like the next story that you're going to introduce and how all the pieces fit together so that you can engage them. And at the end of the day, let's be honest, make money off of it too. Right. No, no. So like with with a game company like like Scopely, what, what, what kinds of data, what are the key things one would be looking for? You know, what kinds of data are you collecting from a mobile game user? Yeah, so there's tons of types, but I, I would say the way I thought about it back in the day was we almost thought of it as taking bets. So you're looking for opportunities to improve a metric. So like in uh, in Yahtzee, it's the ability to, sh- to get them. I mean, it's a turn-based game. Like if you can get them to take one more turn. And you continually iterate on that. And then they're taking two more turns after two weeks and three more turns after four weeks or playing another game because there's uh, a certain number of turns in every game. Like if you can continually increase that, you've improved your ability to engage the user, make them happy and monetize. Uh, Every turn you can show an ad, just like in Scrabble. So the data you collect has to reflect that. Uh, And in mobile, like it's not as necessarily dissimilar from other gaming platforms, but it's just harder to collect because that person is sitting on their own phone running the app, the code. It's not browser based, like where you take tons of assumptions, like it's plugged in and it works and the internet quality is good. They're not sitting in like their car driving <laughs> or on an airplane with on, like it's fun to sit next to somebody playing one of my games, but on an airplane, they're on yeah. airplane mode. Like it's hard. Um, so we're collecting, we try to collect as much as possible, right? So that we can not collect it in retrospect so that we can figure out like, we can come up with the questions and have the data to answer it. But at the same time, you wanna be very cognizant of the user. So I say it over and over because everybody always misconstrues this, but you're not collecting things that would be personally creepy. Like don't take videos, don't collect like their usernames and all that and try not to collect photos. Like it's really our problem. But it's super no, no, no doubt. Yeah. Well, so, so Eric, then like before one can collect this data, you know, they need like the first step 
in this process is identifying a problem for you with Scopely, and then we'll get into Embrace and how that came about. For you with Scopely, was that problem, correct me if I'm wrong, the like people want to be able to socially interact virtually with each other. Gaming is a great medium to do that. Yes. And, and mobile was the only medium other than social networks. And honestly, we didn't want to take that bet. Like for every snap, there's like a thousand dead bodies. It's just a really, it's a really random hard business that has a lot of luck. Not that every startup doesn't have a lot of luck, but you kind of want to limit <laughs> your success based on it. Like find, you always need luck, but make sure it's not only dependent on it. So games, you can, you can build something like, especially if we're in Los Angeles, like you have IP sitting outside your door. Like I'm go walk next door and go knock on the walking dead guys and see if they'll give you the license. That's pretty awesome. But yeah, the problem at that was literally the connectivity. Like we take it for granted today. Like we look at our phones and we're like, that's a social interface. Like obviously you make phone calls even though most of us still text at this point. But texting wasn't really a big thing. Like we texted, but not like we do today. Or in games, all the games have a social component today, but not not then. Like, that's why I like the Farmville example. Like, or Solitaire, right? Solitaire by definition is solitary. Uh, they don't, they didn't have the ability just to literally chat. And people were lonely and trying to use it to kind of satisfy that problem set. and it was the only mechanism to do it. So why not build something like, uh, I mean, that's why Words of Friends blew up as well back in the day. Like it created a natural social mechanism that was secure and comfortable with at least conceptually similar people. Like that's how you want to connect with other people. Oh, absolutely. I remember I was at a a conference one time, uh, probably five years ago or so. And there was actually a potential client that I ended up working with. And um, he had a thing for chess and he invited me to play chess, you know, the, like the mobile chess game with him. And, uh, there we were at the conference playing chess on other ends of the, uh, the conference hall from each other. And it was like, just this great, like building block in our relationship, like so random, but like, I know exactly what you're referring to, Eric. It's great. Did you let him win? I, I did. <laughs> I did. I went easy on him. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Eric Scopely was kind of a, a very like, you know, consumer centric vernacular, although obviously a lot of, you know, B2B yeah. leaders have enjoyed your games. How did you then, you know, go to found embrace and, and realize the unique sets of problems that were kind of, you know, encountering enterprise level companies such as Home Depot and, and Hilton, you know, two two at face value, two very different ecosystems. Very different. Yeah, Scopely was definitely my first, in air quotes, sexy company. Before that, I, I like being behind the scenes. Like, to be honest, the companies we generally see succeed are not the sexy ones. Like, we talk about the sexy ones, but the ones that really, really hit it are the ones that find a problem and really focus on it. I mean, in the gold rush, who made the money? Not the miners, the people that provided the picks and shovels. Uh, I like the picks and shovels. You need a mature ecosystem to go after it. And so I don't think you could have built Embrace 10 years ago or five years ago. You needed enough pain and enough problem set and enough people and companies in the space. But it was born out of that. Like to to go to your question, like why was Embrace started? It was because I was literally playing my own games and then seeing all my friends at other companies playing their games. 
And at the heart of a game, it's how valuable is the user and how long can you keep them? LTV and churn. And if I know that I'm having a problem, then I know my churn is probably degrading or my L and my LTV is probably degrading. And to be honest, like if the LTV goes below a certain limit and you and people start churning, your game is dead. Like it's a point of no return. And it's really scary because it happens before you realize it. It's like when, as soon as you see that metric, right? It's a historic metric, you're dead. Uh, and so you're trying to do anything in your power to, to improve those metrics. And so I was digging in on that problem. Uh, and so that's where Embrace was born. Like if I'm having a problem, like a frozen startup, why aren't there technologies helping me with it? And I was used to having them on the web. If I'm having a, a, like my app closes, which everybody has crash now for mobile in their vernacular, like most of the time it's not a crash. By definition, a crash is like 0.1% of your issues. Like a crash metric is 99.9% .9 is a good one. And so when people complain about a crash, it's not a crash, it's something else. But the technologies out there weren't figuring that out for you. And then I had a ton of different technologies. I had the new relics of the worlds and I had logging tools and Google. So Firebase and Crashlytics and a mix panel or Amplitude and then AB testing tool like Leanplum or Optimizely. And that sucks. You shouldn't have to hopscotch between tools to create a complete picture of the problem you're solving. So I was like, screw it, let's build this company. Uh, and so the premise was, could we, I didn't know observability, monitoring any of those technologies. I'd use them, but I didn't know anything about them. Um, but the core of it was, could we just collect every session for every user and just make it possible? Like, is it economical? Can we actually make the, not blow up the actual user experience? Like lots of open questions. Obviously we figured that out. And so like we're fast forward, we're a series B company growing almost 2.5 to 3X year over year. Like it's definitely a problem. And, to your, and then your second question was the ecosystems. We think of it a little different. So we look for companies, COVID helped us. I hate to say it, but COVID accelerated mobile. For, we look for companies that aren't necessarily number one. We look for the ones that have a limited time period to succeed. So we have Hilton, Hyatt, and Marriott because in COVID they have to become touchless. Like they're competing with Airbnb. We have a bunch of finance companies like the, the new ones, because they can't build this. They had two to three years to succeed. They're mobile first, like the money lines and the Daves. They had no choice. Like they're not going to take 10 years to build this like Uber was forced to or Scopely. And so that's the, so it's not really vertical specific. It's really the maturity of how they think about mobile and their urgency to, to succeed. It's such an exciting business and congratulations, Eric. It's so great to see all of your success with Embrace. You know, Thank you. what are the unique issues that you're facing as you grow so rapidly, if I may ask? You know, it's a very, you know, it's a very hot market that you're in. It's it's very unique. It's very interesting. But I'm curious, you know, here we are in Q1 of 2022. As you look on to the rest of this year and even onward, and, and obviously one could you know, talk about all of the, you know, existential global crises we find ourselves in. But, but I guess what are some of the, um, you know, unique issues that, that you're facing as the leader of this company? Yeah. Putting aside the, the existential, even my last name is Ukrainian. So I feel for it. Fedoran was Fedoransky once upon a time, but putting that aside, cause it's awful. Every startup 
has an existential crisis at any one time. Like at least the the best founders I've met are always moderately paranoid. So even if it's not an existential, it just feels like it. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I would, we, so the one I'm most, I guess, paranoid right now about is scaling smart. And I know it's cliche, but I think a lot of companies, they raise a big round, they feel the pain, they just start filling with bodies because there's so many low hanging fruit to solve because you've been running so lean, but then you end up hiring the wrong people is one problem. Uh, And you find that out like a year later, you end up solving all those problems and then you actually don't have the skill sets in those people to continue to succeed. The second is a concept I call scaffolding. Your goal still is to do as little as possible. It's like put up the scaffold around a building or the frame of the house, don't fill it in. Find people that can fill it in and do it smartly, but do as little as possible. Try not to put processes in place for as long as you can, even if it's super painful, because that slows you down. Like we're still trying to to hit the opportunity. Like the opportunity is always changing. The product is always changing. There's no perfection, right, per product. So don't put roadblocks in your own path. So I worry about that a lot. And that comes down, and the way to solve that is hyper-focus on culture and investing in it and honestly trying to almost mechanize it, which I think a lot of founders screw up on. Mechanizing means like, do create your tenants, but then make sure the tenants aren't just a list on the wall or something on your website. Like, in rec- I love using recruiting as an example. When, you inter- when people interview, make sure that in the briefs, if you're, if you're not doing a debrief, you're failing already. But if you do a debrief, somebody should list the tenants and make sure somebody interviewed for every single one. And if somebody has a no on one tenant, you can't hire that person, which is really, really hard. And it's, and it's easy to say to do that. But if you don't do it, you're, you're never going to culturally scale. And then you're going to end up people that aren't a culture fit and then they'll break your company. Um, and so that's why it comes down to those people. So I worry about that a lot because as you bring in new people, they change your culture just intuitively. Like they're, they're people with their own biases and scar tissue and thoughts of what you see. Right. And so my job partially is to make sure that they're honed in, they understand what we're trying to achieve, that I continually refocus them, that they adopt the culture that we've achieved, but with and with an eye that I know we have to adapt as well and cultures adapt, but don't go off the rails. So that's where my biggest fear is from an internal, like grow smart. Cause that's where series B companies die is it's not product market fit anymore. It's that they grow too fast, but growing too fast is stupid. It's stupidly growing too fast. Right. Well, well, Eric, what are your thoughts on like, and I'm curious to hear, you know, if, if you've been experiencing a lot of the, um, you know, just, just difficulty with this whole great resignation that a lot of tech companies find themselves in. Is that something that you're in the middle of as well? No, I mean, we're honestly, every time it's hard when you're founders, which you talk to all the time, we're in our own bubbles. So we don't know what we're actually doing really well on or not. Uh, that's what part of the reason we are paranoid. I've historically been really good at recruiting. We're not having a problem there oh, that's excellent. and no great resignation either. And so when I talk, I bring this up because when I talk to like our board members or VCs, they're always shocked. Uh, like we're hiring two engineers a week at this point. It's just being scrappy, understanding that focus on the skills you're looking for and making sure your team is fully bought in. Like referral, everybody talks about referrals. They're powerful, but it's not the referrals. It's that your entire team is focused 
on helping you think about it. Because then if your whole company is thinking about recruiting and interviewing and they're bought in, they're creating that culture that I was talking about, like it becomes a process that's just implicit in what everybody does day to day. And then it works. And then it's just being scrappy. I think, I think a lot, it's surprising how few founders don't treat recruiting as one fourth of their job. Like I'm constantly recruiting. Like, yeah, I have to. That's, and as the company grows, actually, it becomes more and more part of my job because then I'm building a bench of leaders and like thinking about what my next leader is in 24 months. And like, it's that's a huge failure point for most found, found, most companies. It's where founders actually have to leave. They just don't know how to do that skill set. Well, let's dive into that, Eric, because that is literally, you know, like what so many tech leaders, that's like one of their key problems is the the recruiting and especially in this unique like environment that we find ourselves in. Like, have you done some like reflecting like and determined like, why is it that you are really good at recruiting and hiring? Are there any like additional thoughts that you would share with with leaders who are really having trouble with that? I wish I had a silver bullet on this. It is an introspective question. I would, when I, I'll reverse it. So when I talk to founders or actually I was talking to a company the other day and it was the head of product and she was recruiting her entire team. And I asked her like, what is your founder? What are your founders doing? And she mentioned they were doing zero recruiting and who better, like right now it is ultra competitive. Like if she reached out, her hit rate on LinkedIn will be low. But if I reach out, even if it's infinitesimally higher, like you got to do it. And my hit rate is much higher. I And it's all the things are cliche, like just take the time, like at Scopely when we were at this moment or Embrace, like I sit in front of the TV, it's brainless. I'm sitting there just whacking LinkedIn, but I'm not doing copy and paste. I'm writing personalized messages. Got to make sure that they see that you care. But more importantly, I'm rambling a little bit, but no, please. it's also about perspective. Yeah. So in each of those emails, it's perspective in how do you get somebody from once they're in the pipe to come to you, it's about stepping in their shoes. And it's really hard to do that when you're your day to day in the weeds in your own company, like they don't care about any of that. You're changing their lives. Like be caught, be aware that your goal is to change their lives. So when you sit with them, you should be in their head. Like they're making a big decision uh, and it's scary. And as long and as long as all the other matters are the same, like comp and like where they live and there's no existential crises, which there's lots right now in their lives, like it comes down to just being empathetic and understanding what is driving their decision. And it's usually emotional. And a lot of founders mess that up. So the first part was the story is like get the easy answer. But founders, many founders don't do is just get off your ass and start recruiting. Uh, and so like at early Scopely, cause we were early LA and the LA ecosystem was too young. There was, wasn't the town here. We were literally flying up to San Francisco every week, getting some and convincing people to get on the plane. Like that's super scrappy and time consuming and hundred percent worth it. Cause it doesn't matter what I do if I don't have people and every per- person creates an exponential change. If you hire a good one on the outcome of your company, more than you can do individually. And then once you get them on the plane, right, it's perspective, get them here, create a good experience, get them to perceive themselves at the company. Like, I love it when they start saying we, by the end of the conversation, they're already picturing themselves as part of your, your people and then build the culture around that. Like interviewing, the point of interviewing is culture and point of 
retention is culture. So like make sure that you're hiring the right people because people breed people. Like people want their friends to join and they want to be amongst like-minded people. It's not getting a beer. It's that you're on the same mission. You're working on similar problems. Like you have enough similarities just on that to enjoy working with other people. You know, I'm going to ask you a, a seemingly basic question, but I really believe that a lot of founders tuning in probably couldn't answer this correctly themselves. From from your experience, you know, and, and it probably varies across different roles, whether that's engineers or, or whatever, but, you know, what is it that today's employee cares about? Like, you know, what is it for them? Is it, is it all about culture? Does it come back to culture or there are, is there a series of different things? I think it's about to change, unfortunately, because of the uh, economic tides and existential issues. But we're in a unique moment, I'd say the last two years, three years. We obviously had enough money. So VCs are investing. There's continuing to invest, which is good to see. So you have enough companies that have enough cash, which in downside times is not true. And so this reason I bring that up is the answer is different in good economic moments, and this is one of those amazing ones for at least in our world, versus bad economic moments. And I've started companies at both times. In good economic moments, there, there are, there's only one reason people join. So taking a step back, there are three reasons, good founder cliche here. So there are three reasons people join a company, right? And stay. They want to be a part of the mission. The company has momentum or at least perceived momentum and the people. And unfortunately in today's world, the first two are commodities. There are tons and tons of companies that have good momentum, that have great missions, uh, like more than there have ever been true. And so as much as I believe in our mission and I'm looking for people that believe in it as well, which is mobile and helping all of us have the best user experience as possible, I'm sure I can recruit somebody and they'll find 10 other companies with a mission that they can like that they connect can connect with and then momentum right it's really hard to separate which companies are successful which ones aren't like there are many many companies especially in SaaS, in b2b that don't have product market fit and have raised 100 million dollar rounds right and the momentum there is perception and it it works so i'm not going to be able to convince somebody in an hour conversation or three one hour conversations that we're any different on momentum than any of those so i have to convince them on the people and people is about getting them to sit with us and be ingrained and investing in them and investing in my own people. So they're excited. And that's the only difference. And that is a differentiator. There are a lot of companies out there that don't invest in it and people show up and then they, they have the great resignation. Like when people move between at home to work or hybrid or whatever models, the ones that Yes, it'll be a challenge and a lot of companies uh, will fail, but it's primarily because they haven't invested in creating the experience that people need and in the company and how they work to actually realize that that's a cultural shift. Like going fully remote is a really hard problem. It's not just as easy as saying everybody go home and show up on Zoom. And now that we're shifting back, like they're all actually investing, like Dropbox redesigned their office, like they're trying to change it. But it's not just that. It's not the artifacts and the environment. It's also creating the processes and thinking about how people are interacting and really going deep to redesign the company to work in that environment. Um, and that's the people piece. Like it's, 
you've got to, it's the most important investment and probably the least invested because it's the most squishy thing to invest in. And that's why people leave for the, that one box. And that's why recruiting is too. People can sense it when they're interviewing that you have that or you don't. Most definitely. And it's like you said, Eric, like it's, you know, it's difficult to streamline a hiring process in that it's this like cookie cutter approach to hiring because every single person that you talk to is about to make a life changing decision. And at the same time, they are unique. Like there's literally not one other person like them, exactly like them on this planet. So, you know, really rolling up your sleeves and, and, you know, like you said, hitting LinkedIn with individualized, personal, relevant messages for each, each, you know, prospective hire. I think that's great. I never stopped. Like when Scopely was what, four or 500 people, I was still doing it. Like it just works. I would give it like to make it more real. I was thinking about that because I'm like sitting on in your audience and I'm like, when people talk like I am, they're like, give me something practical. Uh, so on this note, I like how you said that, like make it personalized. And that's why it popped in my head. When you have an interview process, somebody does the, the screen, usually a recruiter. It's not ideal, actually. It's just scalable. So don't do it just because it's scalable. Like, honestly, the hiring managers should be doing the screens because it's personal. It's an awful use of their time in that respect. Like, would you rather them encoding or managing? But again, hiring that next person's how you grow. And so put the hiring manager, put myself, put the CTO, like they can do a 30 minute screen that many days a week. Start training other people to do it. It doesn't, it should not like as good as your recruiters are, everybody talks to a recruiter. People want to filter fast. So give them somebody else, give them the person to talk to that will actually be their boss or can give them the right perception of the company or pick somebody who's most similar to them that has a similar experience or it's pretty easy to see interests on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram. Like, yeah, it, it's crazy to stalk, but like if somebody's a Call of Duty player, go find somebody in your company that's a Call of Duty player and put them on the phone. We've stopped doing that because that's really not scalable, but early on, yeah, do it. Anything to get them to move along in the phone. In that pipeline, it's a sales process. Like you're converting them from one step to another. And then don't have the recruiter do the negotiation at the end. I'm a huge, huge advocate of having the hiring manager do it, which most companies have the recruiter do the negotiation. They, comp is such an important comp, comp, like aspect of your life and your job. Why the hell is the person that you're gonna have the long lasting relationship where you're supposed to talk comp, not the one having that conversation? Like talk about a great way to lose a candidate. It's awful. So like, again, to your point, make it personal. Like a recruiter will do the script An engineer negotiating with an engineer will not do the script. They will naturally make it personal because they can empathize. Uh, Eric, that I loved that we took that segue there and talking about recruiting and, and hiring because it's it's so relevant to everything that's going on today. And it's something that a lot of tech leaders really struggle with. So I'm so I'm so glad we did that. And Eric, it's been such a, a pleasure speaking with you today on the podcast. Um, you know, before we sign off here today, I've just I've loved everything. It's been such a rich conversation. We've we've covered so much. And I'd love it if you could just let our listeners know, you know, the best way to connect with you, the best way to keep up with Embrace and everything that's going on there. No, I appreciate it. Uh, obviously, if you're an engineer in mobile, 
uh, at an enterprise or kind of mid-market, like a rising star. Like we have tons of customers in that bucket. Like you mentioned the Home Depots and the Hiltons, but we have the Wish and the Goats and the Boxed and the Cameos and the Masterclasses. We love that bucket. They're fun as well. And those apps we use. No offense to the Home Depot. I use that app too, but Cameo is more fun. Feel free to reach out. I'm E-R-I-C at Embrace.io. To your point, I'm cool with people reaching out directly. It's personal. And then otherwise, we have a, a come to go to blog.embrace.io. Like we are constantly posting cool stuff and having webinars and we're doing a March Madness contest because I'm a Duke guy. Uh, we're constantly having fun with it. Um, so just reach out. But it's not just sales. So if you have questions, like we just like being part of the ecosystem. It's changing. I mean, Apple just released a new phone and like things change really quickly. Uh, please reach out. And then on the other end, if you're a vendor, so on behalf of the Hiltons and the Home Depots, we're a marketplace at the end of the platform. So we help them connect to vendors that don't get mobile either. So we partner with the data dogs who you might think were is a competitor, but their focus isn't mobile. They have their own existential questions right now. Uh, competing with the Splunks and the Snowflakes and the Amazons of the world. We're happy to partner with all of them because they should get to mobile quicker too. Oh, I love it. Eric Fudorn, thanks so much again for coming on Leaders of B2B, my friend. It's been a real treat having you on the show today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.